Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. I was talking to my buddy Eric Tivers earlier this week about the monthly Q&As that Eric and I do over on his podcast, ADHD Rewired. And it occurred to me that I haven't invited the ADHD Essentials audience to join us. So, consider yourself invited. They take place on the second Tuesday of each month at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to adhdrewired.com events for more details. Also, to celebrate ADHD Awareness Month, as you know, I'm offering a special discount on this winter's eight-week ADHD parent coaching groups. The groups will begin in January, but if you register for this early sign-up period during the month of October, not only will you lock in your spot, you'll also get one of those eight weeks for free. Visit ADHDessentials.com slash signup, that's S-I-G-N hyphen U-P, to register for your free pre-screening call now, or go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups for more details. And yes, all of those links are in the show notes. This is episode 42. Today, I'm talking to Renee Brooks from Black Girl Lost Keys. I always enjoy it when I talk to someone for the first time, but it feels like they're already a good friend. But it feels like they're already a good friend. Talking to Renee was one of those times, and it was an absolute pleasure. With her clear memory of childhood and her thorough understanding of ADHD, she makes the experience of having ADHD both understandable and relatable. In today's episode, we discuss all kinds of things, from Renee's journey with ADHD to the importance of going with the flow of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We even delve into the controversial land of whether or not ADHD is a superpower, but you'll have to listen to find out how we fall on that. All right, let's get rolling. Okay, so I started Black Girl Lost Keys because when I was out trying to figure out what the experience that I was having meant or what it should mean for me, I was really looking not only for the experience of women with ADHD, I was looking for the experience of Black women with ADHD because I'm a Black woman. You know, one of the easiest ways that, um, one of the first ways that we begin to come into our, our identities is by the cultural context that we're raised in. So when I was out there looking, I really didn't see anything. And I thought, well, if nobody else is out there, somebody else is going to be coming behind me looking for that experience. Why don't I create it for them? That's awesome. That stewardship is huge. I think it's really important for us, especially people with ADHD, because it is so stigmatized that if if we're unique in any way, 
that we need to, if, if it's in you, because, you know, obviously that's not everybody's, everybody's thing. I'm a writer. So it was like, of course I can write a blog about this because that comes naturally to me. Yep. Um, so I love to talk about ADHD. I love to learn new things about there's so much good research out there. There's always something new coming out and everyone gets so excited about it. Like um, a psychiatrist had written this great article about how procrastination is not laziness. And I thought, how many people's self-confidence could that save if we all had access to that information? What was it if not laziness? And I happen to agree it's not laziness. It was either situational, where mm -hmm. there are blockades in your environment keeping you from being able to do what you need to do, or it's an anxiety issue. Mm -hmm. And if you can relieve that pressure, then it makes it easier for the person to get started. He, he was big on creating accommodations, letting people just step away when they're not in the headspace to work on things. I don't, I don't even believe in laziness. I think that laziness is just a lack of skills. It's learned helplessness born out of a lack of skills. I totally agree with you. And for me, as a person who grew up and didn't get an answer to all of this until I was 25 years old, I can say I feel really passionately about children getting evaluated and getting early diagnosis because you don't want to grow into adulthood believing that you're incompetent and lazy and that you just can't that you're that you're not like other people and you, it, like I I always felt kind of um incorrigible as I was growing up like just like well other people can do that but I guess for whatever reason I, like I never felt like I was stupid I knew I wasn't stupid it was just like, maybe I don't want to do it. Maybe when, when you hear constantly that you, you're not applying yourself and you're not working up to your full potential, but you're doing everything that you know how to do in order to do it, how do you not internalize that shame? I'm right there with you. And, and you've sort of glossed over some stuff a little bit that I want to, um, I just want to pull, pull to the forefront. Okay. One of the things is... You sort of talked about how having ADHD is stigmatizing, but so too is being African-American. So you're, you're tangling with two different sort of scenarios where, where being stigmatized is there, particularly in school. Bingo. Before we started recording, one of the things we were talking about was the notion that ADHD sort of, if we have a teacher that's got some prejudices around African-Americans or against African-Americans. Those sort of stereotypes often come up around areas of like, they're lazy or they are loud or they're emotional or fill in the blank, right? Right. And so many of those also happen to go hand in hand with the stereotypes of ADHD. And not only that, but when you flip that around, parents know that potentially teachers could be penalizing their child for things that are simple cultural differences. So imagine how a parent feels when someone comes to them and says, your child might have ADHD. 
the first thing that they're thinking as a parent is you're misunderstanding my child. You're probably taking them out of context. You're trying to penalize them for being different. So it just creates this whole huge layer of defensiveness where the child might actually have ADHD, but because of all of this social stuff that's in the way, we're missing kids who need help. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding and sort of on two layers, one as a host and the other as a former teacher who happens to be a white guy who does <laughs> get it, right? Like I don't have the same cultural experience that you've had. So it sounds like you're saying that some of the cultural norms of being African-American may look like ADHD potentially. No, I don't think it's that, that those things, I think that because of bias and, you know, we all were all becoming more aware as a society about um, the fact that black children are facing harsher consequences for similar issues. Absolutely. So I don't think it's that there are cultural differences that look like ADHD. I think it's more that these children are being more heavily scrutinized and they're more likely to have fault found with them. And some people, um, some people look to um, slap a label on those things that they find as a fault. So if you're being more heavily scrutinized, it, it's like an audit. If you make a mistake on your taxes and they audit you, they're going to catch it. But if not, you might slip through. But if you're African-American, you're more likely to get audited in school. You're more like, bingo. By a wide margin. Yeah. Bingo. Okay. See, I was thinking... To me, the fact that black kids tend to be treated as though they are older than they actually yes. are, and as, as a result, have consequences that are completely inappropriate for the behaviors that they're engaging in, that, to me, is not a cultural difference. That's racism. Bingo. So I was thinking culturalism. When I was thinking culture stuff, I was like, well, maybe as a white guy, I just don't know that black culture just is naturally louder than white culture, and people are misinterpreting that. Like, that was- And you know I, what? No. No. And like, I'll say, you know what? I don't think that black people are louder than white I don't, people. I don't think so either. I, think, I was confused. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's just that it comes back to that same thing when you're seen as they're a black person. So they potentially have all these negative attributes. You're being watched to see if you're going to screw up mm -hmm. or if you're going to display those characteristics you're being watched so of course if someone's paying closer attention to you they're gonna find whatever they can find if they already don't like you it like anybody who doesn't like you is gonna find a reason right. whether it's a realistic reason or not so I, I think that is the biggest factor and I think parents are ready to roll into a school and defend their children against that that makes sense. And I think that defensiveness is necessary, but I think that it can also create an us versus them that can prevent children from getting what they need. Because not every educator is out to medicate or, you know, path, path um, oh God. Apologize. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm so tongue, I'm super tongue tied today, but like, I don't think every teacher is out to do that. But I know for my mom as a parent, you know, and you know, I was a kid during that huge boom in the nineties where everybody, it seemed like was getting diagnosed with ADHD and people were panicking over Mm -hmm. kids being slapped on Ritalin. So there was all that hysteria and then you add the cultural context in there too. When my mom heard your kid has ADHD, she's looking at the fact that I go to a small private school, the only black child in my grade. And she goes, no, I think not. Mm-hmm. I think not. It's not like she just said no and that was the end of it. She took me to my pediatrician my pediatrician was an older doctor. So, you know, kind of curmudgeonly, like, just give her more responsibility. That'll straighten her out. The complete wrong thing to do. So, of course, it's give her more responsibility. She'll improve. She's not improving. Therefore, she's not improving because she's not working up to her potential. Therefore, she's lazy. So that idea kept getting reinforced over and over and over again. Nobody stopped and said, hey, what if we teach these skills a little more effectively? What if we what if we walk her through these responsibilities so she can understand how to do it and we guide her through doing them several times and then two more times when we think that we're done and then we see how it lands. And that's, it's like there's so much information that we have now and access to information that mm-hmm. we have now we just didn't have. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Like when I look at what happened to me, it wasn't an intentional failing. You know, the teacher tried to do what she thought was right by telling my mother. And then after, now that was when I was eight, I got evaluated without my mother's knowledge for ADHD by the public school that I was in, in uh, middle school when I was 11. That shouldn't happen. You shouldn't get get evaluated without parent consent. Never. So of course, what does that do but put her on the defensive? Right, right. And, th- and that's, I want to I wanna sort of point out something here that, that I'm seeing for the teachers in my audience because I have teachers who listen too. Yes. One of the things that I'm hearing, and, I'm, and, and let me know if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but it sounds like there needs to be some trust and rapport created and fostered between the white teacher and the African-American family before, Between any teacher right. and, and any student before, right. you know, well, your as, first interaction with someone shouldn't be telling them that their kid is screwed up. Yeah. And having been a teacher. Mm-hmm. And you're even helping me see some areas where I probably went wrong. With my white family that I'm talking to, there might be more rapport there just because of shared culture, shared experience, vaguely, right? Yeah. Whereas when I meet with an African-American family, that shared culture, shared experience isn't necessarily there. And potentially that African-American family is like, you have, we have nothing in common. There's a gulf that they're perceiving that I'm not perceiving because I come from the dominant culture. So I don't see the gulfs with my members of the non-dominant culture. I think that everyone has the same experience that I have, which is bias at the least potentially going into prejudice and racism, depending on how intense that is and, and what I do with it and whether or not I'm willing to recognize it and learn from it. Right. So 
sort of the view that I'm coming up, coming out from here is the teachers who are not African-American. So teachers in this case, white, you need to work a little bit harder to find those common connections. And that can be as simple as, Hey, you like star Wars too, or I am also a big fan of game of Thrones or anything like yeah, even like a tribe called quest is the single greatest hip hop band that's ever walked the face of the planet. And if you, and you know what, that might pull you into a debate. That might, might pull you into a debate with but some that's people. Okay. Cause that's common yeah. ground now. Cause you know, I have that very strong opinion that a tribe called quest is the greatest hip hop band ever. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, but like, you know, and it's not just that, like sometimes I think people get so caught up in trying to make a connection over differences that they forget like it's it gets exhausting sometimes to have to frame everything in race so sometimes right. it's just like you know we're both parents i have a kid who acts something like you like you know mm -hmm. if somebody wants to talk about the differences we could talk about the differences but you know look like you said look for the common ground and really the the easiest common ground is to show the parent that you care about their kid. And I think where some teachers go wrong is they might, they think that when I come to you and say, Hey, I think your kid's got ADHD. I'm trying to show you that I care about your kid, but you have to show that you care about your kid before that. Exactly. You have to spend a month or so kind of building up to this diagnosis concept. Well, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, I think what a lot of people see that ADHD diagnosis as my child is being a pain in the butt in your class and you don't like that. So you want to medicate my child to make your job easier. Knowing what we know about ADHD, we know that's not the case most of the time. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, you know, it's overdiagnosed in some, some instances, but it's usually not especially like when we're when we're talking about young girls it manifests differently so those those kids are getting missed i wish that i could get in contact with that teacher because she was ahead of her time mm -hmm. you know to to spot a seven eight year old girl with adhd yeah at that time that was good on her yeah, and you said that you then got diagnosed again at 11? At 11. And there was a, like, I was always in a meeting at school. They always had to get together with all the teachers and talk about why Renee wasn't performing up to her potential. And she's so smart. And she's in gifted classes. And why can't we get her to do her homework? Why does it take four hours a night on homework? Wow. Literally. And wow. that's, like, I went back to my mom as an adult. And I'm like, you had to know something was wrong. Hmm. Because it, it's not like I was doing homework that whole four hours. I was getting up, trying to find other things to do and having to get rain back in and, oh, the phone's ringing. Who's on the phone? Or I hear you guys having a conversation. What are you guys talking about? And it would be like, look, will you just finish your homework, kids, so I can let you go about your business? And it would be like, but there's all these other things that I'm more interested in. Let me see if I can continue to shuffle my attention around there. <laughs> I love it that you can go right back to being the kid avoiding their homework. I'm still the kid avoiding her homework. 
And I'm still trying the same tactics that my mother used. Sit there until you get the job done. And it's like, why? That has never worked. (laughs) (laughs) It's never, ever worked. Why am I still trying to treat myself this way? And I I think it's one of those things that you just, you know, it gets ingrained in you. You don't go play until your work is done. What if I can't concentrate until I've gotten some of that energy out? Right. If we could change the way that we think about work and completion of tasks as a society, because we all have an unhealthy attitude towards them, we would, it would be easier on ADHD people as well. But I think as a society, as a whole, we have an unhealthy idea of the way that work should be done. Mm-hmm. And it it just so happens that it affects us maybe more than it affects the neurotypical population. I am starting to wonder about how culture has shifted. Just the demands for our attention. Yes. Your, your smartphone and your computer and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and all that stuff. And I'm starting to wonder if sort of in some ways we ADHD folks are the canary in the coal mine. I really feel like we are. Technology has both been an incredible assistant and my biggest downfall simultaneously. And that's hard. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. Like, why is ADHD suddenly such a big deal? I've heard that. I heard that question get asked yesterday at a workshop I was attending. Oh my God. Doesn't that question make you want to scream every time you hear it? It's like, this is not a new disorder. This is not a new disorder. I don't know how many times I can tell you that it's not new. Like it, it's new to you. Maybe you didn't know about it before. Right. You still don't understand what it is because it sounds like it's made up anyway, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. I've been taking, I've taken to calling it life on hard mode. <laughs> I love that. That's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. Like expert level. Yeah. <laughs> Having ADHD isn't obvious. You can't look at someone and be like, oh, they probably have ADHD. And it always looks intentional. And people equate so many of these executive functions with intelligence and logic and ability. And it's like my lack of executive function, executive function and intelligence are not linked. So Mm -hmm. uh, of course you think I'm smart. I, I am smart. But I also have really crappy executive function. I'm going to be late and I'm going to be disorganized. And you're going to think that I just don't care. And that's not the case. I I can simultaneously be all of those things. And it takes years for people to understand that. In terms of your uh, diagnoses, right? You said you're diagnosed sort of at eight, again at 11. Did it come up again at all? 25, I was being treated for depression and it was really persistent and we couldn't figure out what the problem was. I actually had to take a sabbatical from work um, and I was sitting in my therapist's office one day and for some reason it came up. To be honest with you, I don't even remember being told by my mother that I had ADHD. Like I think it came up once in a while, but it wasn't like a big part of my life. I just so happened to mention it in passing to the therapist and she said ADHD stop right there she literally stopped in the middle of our session said 
before we do anything else, we need to send you over to my colleague and have him evaluate you for ADHD, and then we'll resume. Mm-hmm. And that was what it was. Cool. Yeah, like it was just happenstance. It sounds like that's made a big difference in your life, getting that accurate diagnosis and then doing something with it. Completely changed my life. Like it, it's almost like my my real life didn't start until 25 because, you know, before that you're just kind of mired in, in this shame and self-loathing over why you can't do the things that everyone else seems to be able to do so easily. Why does it take me four hours to do homework? Why do I perform so well on tests, but I can't seem to manage keeping my locker cleaned at school? Like, there's, there's just, why is my room always a mess? Why am I always looking for stuff at the last minute? Why am I always late? I do my best, but it's, it's just, it, like, it just doesn't work. I'm just an irresponsible person, is kind of what you wind up with. But you're not. Not at all. So what strategies have you used or learned to use to help navigate all that stuff? I know that some people are not into meds. I'll tell you, meds have been a game changer for me. I believe in meds. If anybody ever asks me, that's one of the first things that I say. Mm -hmm. Meds are one of the best tools in your arsenal. Um, Alarms have been extremely effective with keeping me on time. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness has been really really helpful there's um you know mindfulness mindfulness with an ADHD slant specifically is so helpful because you know uh, when we think about mindfulness and meditation a lot of us dismiss it because we're like can't concentrate on one thing for that long but the exercises are great one of the trickiest things for me with mindfulness is when I first started with it I kept coming across that metaphor of sitting by a stream right like you're sitting by the stream and every now and then a thought drifts down the stream and just watch it go by and acknowledge that it's there but let it drift away and da, 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 da. and i was like okay and then i would do it and i'd be like why is this so hard and so i eventually changed the metaphor and i was like all right now this is an adhd metaphor or an anxiety one too potentially so pretend that you are sitting next to a stream But on the other side of the stream is a road. And every now and then a thought drifts down the stream and just acknowledge that thought and let it go by. But sometimes a truck drives down that road. (laughs) (laughs) And every now and then that truck pulls over and just idles real loud right across the stream from you. Amen. And like, those are the ones you have to really let go of. That's the hardest part because the thoughts just don't, they don't drift all the time. No, it's like a a stream. Why is the stream making so much noise? Is that a bird I hear in the distance? Like what, what's going on over there? It like, is that an animal I saw come lumbering out of the forest? Like, you know, that's where my brain goes. I'm like, there's too much going on by this stream. There's a lot of stuff that I could get into. (laughs) There's so many techniques that you can apply. Like um, Google, I want to say it's Google Calendar can now sync with Waze, the GPS app. Mm -hmm. 
and it can tell you what time you need to leave to get to where you need to be on time. Awesome. And it like your phone will scream. Like my, my, I can't live without my smartphone. I don't know what I did without it at this point. Cause that's our executive functions. We just outsource them. Exactly. So it's like, you know, I can take notes there and just even just the action of putting a date in my little electronic calendar helps to solidify that in my mind. One of the things I love about, about Google Calendar and sort of the online calendars is the way that they box out time and make time visible. Yes. I love that. Isn't that amazing? It makes you feel like you're in control. The thing about managing ADHD to me is that it seems like it's very fluid. Like what works now might not always work and you have to be open to that. So the calendar is working now. Every once in a while, I'll just drop the calendar completely. <laughs> yep. It doesn't work, but you know, you, you get out of, out of routine and habit and then you're like, oh, my time is a complete wreck. Yeah. It's just not interesting anymore. The calendar got boring. I'm not going to look at it for a while. And then it's going to bite me and I'm going to go back to it. Oh my God. And like, if it wasn't for electronic calendars, I wouldn't bother at all. Like that is the most insulting piece of advice that neurotypicals give, I believe. Why don't you get a date book and write things down? It's so condescending and they don't even realize how condescending it is. It's like, do you think if this was something that could be solved by a post-it note, a calendar, or some other kind of reminder that I wouldn't have already thought of that? Mm -hmm. If you believe me to be a reasonably intelligent person, then what makes you think that I wouldn't have considered a calendar? Right. <laughs> That's a really basic piece of equipment. Like, just write things down. It's it's like, do you want to come over to my house and see all my discarded journals and calendars and post-its and yeah. reminders and date books? The part of the day minder that kills me is the upkeep. Right. Like, who? first of all, I have to have it with me at all times. You're mm -hmm. assuming that I didn't lose it. For me, it's not even that. It's the weekly events. That's what kills me because I'm not going to write down, go to the dojo at seven o'clock on Monday no. on every single Monday in that date. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Nobody's going to do that. And that means that I'm going to be less inclined to write other stuff in because I know I didn't write the dojo one in. Right. Whereas an electronic calendar, you can hit repeat forever at seven o'clock on Monday to remind you. And it's in there and it's right. done. And it's like, okay, writing it down, it doesn't cure my time blindness. It doesn't give me a trigger to look at the calendar. Mm -hmm. So that's cute that I wrote it down. If I never look at it again after I wrote it down, how did that help me? Whereas Google Calendar can send you a text message and have a pop-up on your computer screen and all kinds of stuff. Thank you. It can send me everything but a smoke signal on every device I'll come in contact with. And I'm a hopeless electronic junkie, so I'm going to get the reminder. <laughs> it, it's like, that's just the way that it has to be. Like, they just, the concept of time blindness, the concept of not having that little 
voice that tells you, hey, look at your calendar. It, it's So you've mentioned time blindness a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Walk us through that. Time blindness is not having an effective internal clock that, that lets you know how much time has elapsed. Have you ever gotten lost in a project and it seems like only a couple of minutes have gone by, but it's been an hour? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha- I have to keep a handle on time. Like, I hate time. I, I do as much stuff as I possibly can to avoid deadlines and time restrictions and having to be places on time because it's just such a source of angst for me. Mm-hmm. Going back to the time blindness real quick, the inverse can also happen, right? Where you think an hour has gone by and it's only been two minutes. The more unbearable a task is, the longer the minutes stretch out. It's like being a kid on the last day of school waiting for the bell to ring and dismiss you. Like, it's got to be three o'clock, right? It's, not, it's, it's 11. How is it only 11? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, and the thing that I think makes it so difficult for neurotypical people to, to understand is because they feel those things too. And they can understand those concepts, but what they can't understand is how we can't work around them like they can. And it, it's like, because you have better executive function than I have. It, like, it's not like we have no executive functioning capabilities. It's just that they're really crappy. It's almost like we have a bum hip and all of our friends can't figure out why we're not walking as fast as they are. Thank you. That's exactly <laughs> it. Like, why can't you run? And it's like, I, I can't. I've got this bum hip. But they can never see that you have the yeah. bum hip. They never see you taking medication. They never see you going to doctor's appointments. We don't actually limp. So they they forget about the bum hip until it's time to run. And then they're annoyed with you because they feel like you're just being malingering. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Um, I don't know. Where do we go next? What are any, any other significant thoughts on ADHD that you're having? You know what? What do you think about this concept of ADHD being a superpower or a gift? How do you feel about that? If I bought into that, I wouldn't say ADHD was life on hard mode. I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I think that's a dangerous way of thinking. I, I think for, for people who have a more severe case of ADHD to hear that is really, can be really defeating. I think I'm a theory that I'm starting to work with on that. One is sometimes you need something to hold on to. Sometimes stuff is hard and you just need something to grab onto. So you're going to say ADHD is a gift because it's helping you survive day to day. And I don't want to take that away from anybody. That's true too. But another component that I, that I'm starting to wonder about is if ADHD is life on hard mode, because it just makes things more difficult. And then there's an area that it doesn't make more difficult. The gulf between the stuff that you're good at and the stuff that's really, really hard for you is so big that you might assume that this thing that you're pretty good at is a superpower when actually you're like just above average at that. You're not superpower. You're just above average on that thing, but everything else is a little below average. So it feels like it's a big deal because the below average stuff to you is average. Yes. I don't it, know if that it, I explained that well. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And, and 
Like we all need something that makes us feel good about ourselves, especially if you have ADHD, because so many things that we struggle with make you feel like a failure or a screw up. And we, we all really need a hug. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think the areas that people with ADHD tend to be good at are pretty consistent. Absolutely. So it's easy to be like, that's the superpowers that come with ADHD. When I think it's just above average powers that feel like superpowers. Right. Because like they talk about creativity, like neurotypical people aren't capable of being creative. They totally are. There are neurotypical people who are incredible artists. Mm -hmm. Like we, we don't have the market cornered on creativity or entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is not for every person with ADHD. Right. I, I don't think that's fair for us especially when people say that to someone with ADHD who is struggling in the workplace or, or in school versus trying to show them how to get accommodations, I think we're failing them. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and it's, it's been a pretty hard road to figure it is out. hard, right? Yeah. To figure out what to do and how to get myself, my name out there and how to hold myself accountable to all the things that I have to do. Yes. It's hard. Thank you. And then some mornings you find yourself drinking orange juice out the bottle and eating tortellini for breakfast just because you can. On one hand, it's a wonderful freedom to be able to let your mind do its thing while still being able to maintain a living. On the other hand, it can get pretty dangerous to have that level of freedom. Like on my end, one of the the most valuable lessons I learned from becoming an entrepreneur is I've learned how to fail. Yes. Because that was something that was really hard for me because when I worked for other people, I felt like if I failed once, I was going to lose my job. And that anxiety meant that when I failed, once I failed once, those failures were going to stack up on themselves and then I was going to lose my job. Whereas now I can fail and be like, oh, whatever. I totally agree with you. And especially like once you experience screwing up so bad at work that they fire you any subsequent employment that you get you you're just in complete terror like I don't know if everybody's experience is the same as mine but when my anxiety is out of whack I might as well not even bother taking any ADHD meds they don't work anyway the anxiety completely tears my focus to shreds and nothing can help that. And that anxiety around failure, that fear of failure for me, tracks back way before employment. It tracks Absolutely. back to, it tracks back to school. Yes. Oh my God, yes. And and as a teacher, I would work with this with my kids. And when I do workshops in schools, I talk about it all the time. To some degree, there's not much that a teacher can do about it because part of the nature of school is you take the test and it's the culmination of the of the unit. So you fail that test, but we're moving on to the next unit. And it doesn't matter if you, whether you understood the previous material or not. And if you want to make up that test, it has to be a form of punishment because you have to give up your time, go to class early, stay after school, retake the test. You're sacrificing stuff to fix that mistake. And it's a punishment, even though it's not intended to be a punishment. For a kid, that's a punishment. But it's the nature yes. of how much time schools don't have 
that that's what they just have to keep going. There's only 180 days in the school calendar and they have to teach a certain amount of stuff. And it's the nature of the beast. And that's the thing. The way that we have schools structured is almost in direct opposition to what the ADHD brain needs. And schools, at least in my area, a lot of the schools in my town and in sort of the general vicinity of where I live in central Massachusetts are um, really pushing growth mindset work. Really? As opposed, yeah, as opposed to fixed mindset stuff. The, the difference Ooh. being, yeah, right? For, for my listeners, the difference being a fixed mindset is I can do it or I can't do it. And that's pretty much at the end of it. And a growth mindset is I can't do it yet. Like maybe later I'll be able to do it, but I can't do it yet. I haven't figured it out. Or I can do it right now and that might change, right? Like I might struggle later or I might get better than where I am right now later. But that ability to see that you can grow and expand and learn more and get more skills um, as opposed to just being stuck. And I, I can't do math or I just can't read. School is a big self-esteem shaper Mm -hmm. for the future and I, like I agree with you my failures in school have made me a much more anxious adult and much more swift to find fault with myself we've got to do better for our kids I used to say to my students you're gonna know that you don't get it before I know yes and you have to tell me but kids often don't they don't tell their teacher because because of the nature of feedback around not knowing stuff. Generally, the teacher finds out you don't know something either in front of the whole class, which is embarrassing. Or through a failure. And both of those things feel terrible and are really horrible for the kid. So the lesson that they're getting without the teacher trying to teach it is that failure is bad, not knowing is bad, being unable to do it is bad. So you fake it. You pretend you can do it. Oh my God, yes. And you know what? That's a big thing with ADHD people too. We are masters at faking our way through stuff. We have no idea. Like on one hand, it like, it makes you quick on your feet. It makes you really adaptable and flexible. But on the other hand, there are some times when we could use support in areas and we're so used to trying to make it seem like we know what's going on that maybe we missed the point. And we miss out on support that we could actually use. And that's not fair. And you're saying that as someone who has found success within their ADHD. Yes. There's some people who don't become quick on their feet and don't become adaptable. You're absolutely right. Because what if you're not? What if you have anxieties that prevent you from doing that? What if, you know, that's just not your skill set? How do you survive? How do you thrive with that? You can't. And, and then you have to listen to a bunch of people tell you about how it's a superpower and it's a gift when you're watching it destroy your life. If somebody feels like something is a gift to them, you don't want to like crap all over that and say, no, it's not, you, you know, it sucks because I think it sucks. Like, you know, they can, they can have their gift, but I just, I feel like ADHD almost ruined my life and I've watched it really severely damage other people's lives. And I'm really reluctant to see that as a gift. I agree with you. And um, on the one hand, I'm like, absolutely, it can, be, it can be a gift. Like my view, my view on it is play to your strengths. Yes. 
You, and those are your gifts, however you want to define gifts. Play to your strengths. It can be a gift. I don't know that it's a superpower. And I don't know that your gifts and your strengths have to live inside the bubble of ADHD. Can't that just be your gift and your strength? How about that? Like allowing your identity to be defined by a disorder that you have doesn't feel healthy to me. What if they came up with a cure for ADHD? Would you not take it? I would. Uh, listen, <laughs> I'd be first in line. I'd be like, what? Give yeah. me two doses of it. Get rid of this stuff. Yeah, because all of my gifts, I think, would still be there. All of the lessons I learned Thank you. It would still be there. And my gifts are around people. Like I'm exactly. really good with people. And that's not going to vanish just because I don't have ADHD anymore. It just means I'm going to do stuff more effectively. And you know what? I think it's easier. And maybe I just think it's easier because I have it too. I think when you're able to relate to people and connect with people, that this becomes an easier disorder to manage because when you can do that, that's when you get more people who say, I didn't expect you to show up on time anyway. You never do. It's cool. Or you show up on time because somebody loved you enough to realize that you're always a half hour behind and lie to you about what time you needed to be there. <laughs> we do that to my sister. Yeah. Um, they don't even have ADHD. They're just always late. Some of it is- like some people, Thank you. Late. Some people are just <laughs> chronically late. Like it's not always, and you know what? That's another thing that's frustrating because when you have ADHD and sometimes life just happens, people try to blame it on your ADHD. And it's like, I didn't leave late. I didn't do anything crazy. I just got behind traffic mm -hmm. or there was an accident. Like I have ADHD, but I also live in a regular normal world where stuff happens still. Not every weird thing that happens in life is something that I want you to blame on my ADHD. Like, give me, give me some kind of credit. Like, you know, I've gotten a little better at managing this thing. Maybe you shouldn't be so quick to be like, did you take your medicine? Are you doing this? Are you doing, it's like, I was just late. Therein lies the gift and the curse of making people understand because sometimes they go overboard in their understanding and think that they can tell you how your ADHD works. And it's like, you know, this isn't, this wasn't an ADHD problem. Like maybe I was just really just procrastinating because even neuro, neurotypical people procrastinate sometimes. Like give me some humanity, don't blame it all on ADHD. So two things. Mm -hmm. One is you mentioned that ADHD almost destroyed your life. And then we just moved on from that. I know I immediately was like, what's in there? But I'm looking at the clock and we don't have time to find out. And I don't even know if you want to tell that story. Just to put it really like concisely, it made me so depressed that I could barely function. And it really messed with my ability to keep a job, which tanked my self-esteem. Mm -hmm. So going to therapy and working through that and the low self-esteem that comes from a life of living with undiagnosed ADHD, I had to snatch my life back from that. Mm -hmm. That's a good answer. And I would love to have you back on the show. That would be a blast. Hear a little more of your story, do a little more just talking about ADHD generally like we've done, but in looking at the clock and being mindful of time, 
we have to close, which is kind of a bummer. So do you have any ending essentials around ADHD or anything that we've talked about that you'd like to share with the audience? If I could do it all over again, the one thing that I would learn is not to be so completely devastated by a mistake. Just like you said, that, that fear of failure, because I think, um, I think that sometimes with ADHD, we really defeat ourselves over the most simple of mistakes. And that doesn't help us to improve and it doesn't help us to move forward. It, it keeps us in this place of being defeated. And, and that's a constant struggle. Like I, I still struggle with that. It's a behavior I probably will spend the rest of my life unlearning. And that's why, that, that's why I feel so committed about early diagnosis for kids, because I'm like, if I could just say one person from, from having this ingrained belief that they're wrong, all that I had to go through would not have been in vain. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.